Thanks for listening to the Pro Video Podcast, weekly insights into everything video. Here's the host, Blair Walker. Welcome to episode number nine. I'm Blair Walker on the Pro Video Podcast. This week, we're talking with James Cunningham, visual effects lecturer at the Media Design School. The work that they're putting out at the Media Design School with the students is extraordinary, world class. They consistently win awards all across the world and are putting out short films that showcase the students' talents. James shares a lot of insights into how this works and why the students are consistently putting out exceptional work. At the start of this episode, we'll explore what James's background and his career path was. Then we talk about the amazing work that the students are producing through these short films. Hope you really enjoy this episode. Again, please subscribe through iTunes. It makes such a big difference. Also, join us on the Facebook page, search for Pro Video Podcast. All right, let's go to this episode with James Cunningham from the Media Design School. Thanks, James, for coming in to the show today. It's awesome to have you here. Thank you very much. James, I'd just like everybody to sort of understand what your background and what you're currently doing. Would you mind spending a few minutes explaining what your role is? Sure. I'm a senior lecturer at Media Design School. Uh, where we have a Bachelor of Art and Design degree and we're training animators, visual effects artists. On the, in the third year of that degree, we make films and uh, we make films and those use those films as a way of teaching the students, giving them a real taste of a production environment. A long time ago, uh, when I left high school, uh, I thought I was going to be a photographer and I went to Elam School of Fine Arts uh, at Auckland University and after about three years, uh, there was an compu- uh, introduction to computer graphics course. Uh, they had, I think, um, Apple Quadra 950s, maybe even earlier than that, and they had Photoshop version 1. It was a wee while ago, and um, that was my first taste of doing this stuff. And, and it's sort of right around that time I started to realize I couldn't do what I wanted to do with one still image, and I started doing... I remember did this stereoscopic slideshow where I basically started telling a story. And that was my first taste of making a narrative piece and engaging with an audience for three or four minutes. And I remember at Elam they have these open days on the, at the end, of the end of the year and you can go along and I would hover around where my work was showing and listen to the people coming out of the room. And that was, um, that was very... It's almost addictive in terms of not that I was spying on them, but just that I knew I'd reached people and I, that they were really they connected with the work. Usually at Elam, you're walking around on the open days. You're going, okay, there's, yep, seen that picture. Yep, seen that picture. You've seen that picture. You, you go, you're spending about three seconds on every artwork. So that was a pivotal moment for me was making that transition from still images to narrative time based as a as a storyteller, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, so fourth year, I ended up doing computer animation. Uh, there was no one there to teach it. They just uh, had some the basic gear there. And I actually had a part-time job where they had a silicon graphics computer. My brother taught me the basics. And I, one summer, I got in touch with the resellers of the, so- of the software and the, and the hardware, and they got me a license of this. The software then was like $40,000. Uh, the, the computer was $65,000 then. And I got a license for the Christmas break. And I just sat down with the manual for the Christmas break and taught myself the basics of, okay, how does this software, this was Alias Power Animator back then. Yeah. Um, and that that's what has evolved into becoming Maya. And yeah, so that Christmas sort of set me off and, 
And then I signed up to do a master's degree back at Elam where I knew, okay, I want to do more of this. I knew that I wouldn't get taught in the same way that um, the way I teach now at Media Design School. There were no places like that you could go. But I, it was a creative environment where I would be challenged and uh, I would have deadlines and things, things like that. And they'd also buy me a computer to play with. So they said, instead of buying a couple of Macs, they bought me this little indie that sat in the corner. I sat in the corner for a couple of years and made two short films. And that's what got my career going, yeah. Crazy to think that so much of the learning back then was based uh, out of the manual. Oh, yeah, there were no... This is pre... Right around this time was when I got my first email, right? And this is... uh, Yeah, there were no tutorials online. There was nothing. I... um remember back to the days when I was learning 3D as well in the SGI, the, um, was it the O2 boxes? Oh, the yeah, little blue, yeah, the ones. blue ones, yeah. Yeah. We were lucky enough to have a tutor who had graduated two years prior who became the tutor. Yeah. <laughs> and very much it was uh, learning from him. But again, back in those days, it was locking yourself in the room for as many hours as possible to just nut through and problem solve, which really teaches you so much mm. than having it spoon-fed through a tutorial. Uh, the complexity of what you could achieve then in computer graphics was so limited. It was quicker to learn in a way. There wasn't as much you could learn. Yep. Now, when I look at the students starting out these days, it is taking them three years to get to be at a level where someone could put them in a chair and pay them because they, you know they're going to be productive enough that they can actually make money off them and earn their job because there is so much required now you've got to soak up so much knowledge uh the medium isn't necessarily getting any easier yeah no definitely so after that where did you end up in the industry what was your first job i was uh yeah out of art school at uh digipost um digital post they had a uh sub company called digideep got jeff sanchez smith um he hired me and that was doing doing bits and pieces of commercials. Uh, that was great fun. Learned a lot. Learned a lot from Jeff. And there was a film that I tried to make at Elam, and it was too big. And uh, my friend uh, and producing partner um, at that point, uh, Paul Swedell, he we together put an application to the film commission to get to do a funded film, and that became my first uh, big film, Infection. That was, uh, yeah, so we got $65,000 in, it was about 98, yeah, 1998, 99. And I sat in the spare room. This is, so Maya was now running on a PC, so you could buy a PC. It was, so for the, the price point of all the stuff was plummeting. And I sat in the spare room for nine months and made this short film called Infection. And it, that did really well. It was, if I made it now, I don't think it would do as well. I think it was partly the success of the time and this computer graphics was so new so I was able to ride that wave uh, and that got into some uh, very very good film festivals which uh, which was great but also got me uh, a job interview at Weta Digital so it sort of set me off in two paths Uh, one I got my I got some credibility with the film commission uh, in terms of getting a potential career going as a filmmaker and then uh, being able to um, sit down I'm, I, I remember we had uh, had a meeting with Char- and it's got Charlie McClellan who was the um, VFX producer at Weta Digital at the time no one knew what Weta was going to be making at this point it was all hush hush Peter Jackson was doing something and I went to his house and he, he slid the Lord of the Rings across the table and I was like 
oh, so that's what they're doing. Oh, and it was sort of all top secret. Couldn't tell anyone. I must confess, I had not read Lord of the Rings. I'm quickly going to read. I actually was reading Lord of the Rings. I don't think that's a quick read at any time. <laughs> no. no, it's true. It's true. It wasn't a quick read, but it was good. To, it's a good thing to do while you're while you're waiting for a render to happen. You could yeah. knock off a couple of pages. So finish in fiction. I uh, did the sound mix. This is all. Um, you know, I had the mute print. That's right. So you have a, a 35 mil print that didn't have any sound on it, and brought that from the film unit, and brought it to the. Um, theater at manuka street where we did where digital were just in one little building at that point and played down the film and um so john shields and charlie mcclellan were there and they were running where to digital and i was like i wanted to be an animator and john shields said no you're going to be a lighting td i was like oh. i was a bit disappointed but he was right and that that he knew the way that they wanted to run where digital and the way it still runs is it's very much um, driven by the shots department, which is the where everything comes together at the end. And because I'd made this film where I'd animated it and lit it and done everything myself, that's the sort of people that he wanted in the shots department, people who could right at the end pick up anything and fix anything and get, get a shot out. So that was, um, yeah, so, so I ended up doing lighting on the first Lord of the Rings film. So awesome. that was a big learning experience for me. It's really interesting uh, hearing from you that you were pushed in a direction that you might not naturally have wanted right at the start. I think that was a mistake that I made earlier in my career was not listening to people senior. Um, I went for a job at Allura mm-hmm. in Australia and I really wanted to do visual effects compositing on the flame because I'd been tinkering with it at the post-production company I'd been working at and they saw my work and was like, no, we want you to be a 3D modeler and because I felt like I'd done that for so long, I really resisted it and I always wondered what would have happened if I'd gone for that role and seen what would have happened. As it turns out, I'm very happy where I am now doing lots of different things but I think opening yourself up to the thoughts of people senior because they can see something in you and in mm. a direction that's going to be valuable for you. Or they could see my it. animation wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I really want to dive into the successful short films that Media Design School has been putting out for, for a number of years. And you've been involved with the majority of those in some shape or form. What I've always found interesting is that it's such a a real world opportunity for the students to get their hands into a project and produce work of exceptional quality. Mm. And that by bringing all the students together and giving them really solid content to be working from, they produce amazing, outstanding work every time and it just gets better and better. Do you mind explaining what the process of those short films are with coming up with them and what the final outputs have been so far? Sure, yeah. When uh, when I started out at Media Design School, it was about eight years ago, and I had been, I was head of 3D at uh, Digital Post, and over the years, the new people that we had uh, hired into Digital Post had all come from Media Design School. Back then, they were uh, head and shoulders above the rest, and so and I got involved with going to industry nights and I specific, I would go and poach people basically I was like I'd get their reels and okay and we would we would go and grab the best ones that we wanted um who were available and who wanted to come and work with us and it was a great yeah that, that worked really well and then 
it was right around the financial crisis time and the commercials industry was tanking. There wasn't much interesting work. I'd just made my second funded short film called Poppy and I'd sort of taken uh, most, of a, most of a year off. Going back to commercials was really, really hard. <laughs> it was really hard uh, doing quotes on stuff that was no budget and yeah, stuff you didn't want to do. So uh, my heart wasn't in it anymore. And this opportunity came up uh, at Media Design School. They were um, a couple of people had left, and I thought, okay, there's um, a chance to try my hand at teaching. Very interesting transition. It actually went much smoother than I thought. But when I started, uh, I was uh, someone there, this guy Oliver Hilbert, he had started maybe a month or so before me. And the two of us became a team. The two of us were basically drove the um, those short film productions from then on. So the way the... The course was structured then. There was two different diplomas, and the second year there was a second year diploma, and then that there was a large team production. And so when I came along, before yeah, before I came along, the students had been somewhat thrown to the wolves in the sense that they, by themselves, they were expected to do all of this writing and directing and producing and potentially filming, but that wasn't part of the teaching course. It's not a film school, so that seemed like an they weren't being assessed on that stuff, so that seemed like an unfair um, approach. And I felt like, well, I know what, having been on the industry side, what these guys need are really good shots on their reels, something that can really help them show their potential, show uh, industry people what their potential is. So it's like, okay, well, I can, I've been running a team of five people at DigiPost. If I've got a class of five or ten people, let's make a production, we'll do the same thing. And so I had uh, writer friends and... Um, New, just worked with all my industry connections from doing years of commercials and we sort of adjusted the process where those large team productions the lecturers took control and it didn't change it didn't change the learning outcomes for the students in fact it sort of strengthened it made it clearer what it was they were there to learn uh, and they would and so yeah we started out with um, oh, yeah, that's right. we, when I've turned up with they had six weeks to finish start and finish a film and I remember walking to work, enjoying the walk to work. It was nice to be walking to work, smelling this fresh air and this it was very nice spring days, and but also stressful stressfully thinking, what the hell are we gonna do with this class? And and so I took the approach of uh, what we've done with commercials, which is usually in a commercial situation you you'd almost throw a shot per artist as a way that this artist would have ownership of this shot, everything in it, and you could uh, it was easy to schedule out and plan and bang, 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 shots done. And so I came up with this very silly, simple little story, which is called Slightly Fishy, which I think might be online still. I don't know. It's it's pretty rough. We shot with the school's ca- uh, school's camera, which is not great. And it was we were running around and running around Auckland City. We even got the cops called on us because we were in a dark alley with a bloody knife and a guy covered in blood and stuff like that. But but it was the film went really well. It's a simple exercise to... Uh, all these different creatures would come out and get this guy. And that was our first sort of trial by fire of uh, going through this. The next class came along where Ollie and I were a little bit more organized with what we were going to do. I sat down with a writer friend of mine, Nick Ward, and we came up with, uh, around my kitchen table, a few beers came up with this silly idea called Dust Tub, uh, sort of play on dust boot, and the story takes place significantly in a bathtub. And it was, that was the premise of that came out of the 
of the notion, okay, we have visual effects. We have the thing that most filmmakers can't afford. Let's use that to our advantage. Where can we go that you normally can't go? And we sort of mull over this a couple of beers later. Inside a submarine. Yeah, that sounds cool. Haven't been inside a submarine before. That's cool. Great. And we go, okay, maybe World War II submarine. Oh, that's even better. Okay. And then maybe there's some sort of conflict. Or what could be outside? And what's the most ridiculous thing that could be outside? Another beer later. Uh, a space shuttle. So we have a space shuttle that's tumbling through the water toward them. And so we come up with a story. And it was, yeah, that went really well. That's, um, that shoot was went very smoothly. And the film worked very, um, very, it was very achievable for that class of five. I'm um, very indebted to. That was the first time I worked with a uh, DOP. Uh, Simon Riera came on board, and it was. I remember turning to Simon Riera at the end of that night and saying, "I never realised how much I needed a DOP. Thank you so much, because he's really he. It was almost like my film school because he was teaching me how to shoot coverage, how to shoot master wide, going for the shots. So, because yeah, before that, I was I'd, with animation. You kind of fudge it, whereas you, yeah, you know, this he was really showing me the a live action approach to things. And so that uh, so dust tub that started to make a bit of a different um, be noticed by the school in terms of wow, oh, this is a lot better than we've normally had, um, and it started getting noticed that we made uh, we won some big big festival awards with that. And it got into some big uh, online Google, uh, um, YouTube competitions. And the school started to realize that instead of making up stories for marketing, they could actually just tell the truth about how well these films are doing. And so the school started then giving us money to make more films. So we've actually slowly over the years built up budget. So now we actually have a good, good amount of money to each film. We can go out and um, produce a decent result. And yeah, so Dust Tub... What do we make next? Rotting Hill. Have you seen that one? Yeah, I did I have seen that? It's it's really <laughs> funny. It's the sickest love story I've ever seen. <laughs> yes, it was. It was uh, that one came out of a, uh, one of the students from a previous class. He sent me an email with a whole lot of paragraphs of just little short synopses of different story ideas, and one of them was zombies in love, uh, two two zombies fighting over a body, and then. Out of that idea came the pivotal shot for the film, which is the there's a um, is it the fox and the hound, where they're eating spaghetti? No, not the fox and the hound. No, it, anyway, two dogs kissing over a piece of spaghetti. So we have two zombies kissing over a piece of guts. Uh, we had very lucky to have Anna Hutchison, uh, who's gone on to be a very famous actress. Uh, we went out and filmed that, and that was oh, blood and guts. That was great fun. But yeah, it was a very fun story to to write in terms of that in that case we yeah brainstorming with the class coming up with ideas of all the sort of romantic comedy tropes and now just make it with zombies yeah and so that um and, and then my, my writer friend uh gave gave all that to my writer friend guy hamling he wrote it up and came up with the uh the final gag where the guy's the guy's wang falls off because well, he's a zombie right he's <laughs> someone's got to fall off <laughs> It's. I love the scene where he's teaching her um, zombie killing techniques well, with, yeah, the, with the, the shovel. Yeah, it's, it's the, the romantic um, coaching the bat swing yeah, shot, yeah. and it's but, with a shovel. 
there's some nice shots of the compositing and the making of mm. at the end of that, and it was the actor took a bit of a fall. It looked like he was taking a bit of a punch to the face. He was really throwing himself into that shot with the headshot one. Yeah, with the headshot. Well, one. That's Simon uh, Simon Heath, one of the lecturers. Uh, I think you're yeah, one of that, and it's one of the students holding something out and smacking him in the head. Uh, that worked quite well. But yeah, a lot of the people in the film are either students or uh, some of the other faculty uh, being chased by zombies or becoming zombies, yes. You've had quite a few well-known actors I've seen in a number of the sh- short films and voice artists, and it's um, one that comes to mind is uh, Shelved with mm, some well-known yep. Uh, actors um, acting as stand-in and voice. It's it's really cool seeing the making of that one in particular and looking at all the clean-up. Every film seems to have quite a different approach to the what's needed for the different shots as well. You're really sort of changing it up. Is it getting harder and harder to come up with the ideas for the short films? Simple answer, yes. <laughs> yes, it's taking longer and longer. I haven't been able to recreate the success of One Night with a couple of beers. Uh, no, the the last couple of films have taken generally months. Now yeah. it's I don't know. I suppose one of the one of the things I'm more conscious of is trying to come up with a story that fits the, each class. Because over the years, usually the, we've been too ambitious with what to try and achieve, and the production has either gone long or it's just yeah, it's driven people pushed people too hard. And coming in, you don't know who you have in the team yet, so you don't know what their strengths are. I suppose, yeah, adjusting a sto- trying to you're trying to find a story that will satisfy the students, be something they like, have the right amount of animation, have the right amount of interesting, fun things to, to model and texture. It needs to be live action because we've got compositors, so they want to do clean up and roto and things like that for their reels. And all of this, and you want to make a good film, so you've got all this added constraint. And you want to be able to make sure you can do it within a three-month window because if it goes on long, then it eats into their, their, their short films that they make themselves right afterwards. Fighting all of those constraints is getting harder and harder. So yeah, now we end up shooting earlier and try and shoot earlier. We, uh, we don't have time to involve the students in the story creation anymore because if the class is too big, it's too hard to come up with the ideas with a, with a huge group. If we delay the writing until the class starts... Then it's probably not week. It's probably week five before we've we've got a script and you've shot it. You've organised a little shoot that takes at least five weeks, and then you've got to cut it. And then so yeah, six weeks in, you're already halfway through production and you haven't started anything yet. So yeah, so we'd end up yeah, things would go long and it was yeah. So we've, in order to combat that, we try and push earlier the 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 ideation and the writing and the filming as early as we can. So that by day one, hopefully there's something for them students to start working on. Victim of your own success, really, isn't it? Which is a good thing to be. You want the students to be happy as well. Mm. It's it's a balancing act. I can't, they're not slaves working yep. just for me or something like that. It's like, it is a collaboration. And we want, it needs to be something that they like and they're proud of. Uh, and so it's, a, yeah, it's this balancing act of putting everything together. So what are the courses at the Media Design School that um, are offered for this area? In the digital entertainment area. So uh, there's four different degrees, two related to the games industry. There's a Bachelor of Software Engineering and a Bachelor of Creative Technologies. But yeah, so it's basically game art and game programming. So those two degrees dovetail together. And then there's a Bachelor of Media Design, which is graphic design, 
and motion design and web design, online design. And there's also just off to one side is the Creative Ad School, which is a very successful uh, small boutique class uh, that's sort of training people specifically for being creatives in the um, advertising industry. And they're very, very successful. They do outstandingly well. In your degree streams, what are the specialties that the students can go into? So within the Bachelor of Art and Design, which is the one that I'm teaching in, we uh, divide into three different streams uh, in the second year. Animation, technical 3D artist, so you're doing modeling and texturing, rigging, that sort of person, or compositing and a bit of motion design. The structure to the course at Media Design School is quite different from most of the other schools around. It's very... um, Courses laid out for you basically. You, it's not a pick a path. You don't want. To, there's no. Hey, I want to take that paper over there, and I want to take that paper over there. Oh, I might try that over there. It's very much everyone in the first year is doing all the same foundation year. Then you get one choice of what stream you're going to go into, and then after a year of doing just character animation, you come back together into the third year, and all work all work together again. And so that replicates the, those specialisations is far more industry focused, and we end up with students that are. Basically, within those three years, they're at least a year or more ahead of other students in terms of the quality of where they're at and the amount of time and dedication. And we do hear that some students don't want to come to me design school because they've heard it's too hard. It's too hard work. But those are the students you probably industry wouldn't want to hire if they're worried about working hard. I think all industries are getting harder, not easier. Yeah. And the expectations of graduates are, like you said before, we need people who are going to hit the ground running yeah. and you're going to be working out of the gate. Uh, there's always a lot of support out there. And I think that sometimes having that focus and that real world knowledge allows you to explore other areas in your professional career a little bit more as well. Really, at the end of the day, these students want to be getting out there and getting jobs. And that's what I've seen. The skills that your graduates have, there's no doubt that they are very, very capable to step into working roles straight away. So what are the success stories from students? Now that you've had quite a few years, it must be really, Mm. really exciting to see some of those names up on shows and things like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's lots of them out there now. Actually, I was at Weta Digital a few weeks back giving a giving a little talk on short films. And it's like an internal thing they call Chalk Talks. Mm-hmm. And I thought maybe five people would come. I said, no. But the room was packed. It was great. It was like 40, 50 people there. Okay, the room was a little stacked with some of my, my graduates, but not many. But maybe there were about 10. Yeah, there was about 10 of my graduates there. And I was very proud to see them all there and give them a shake their hand. And yeah, there's... They're, uh, they're all doing so well um, in their careers. There's so many of them at Weta Digital. It's crazy. Yeah. And then uh, and yeah, there's guys like uh, those who are more interested in story, uh, storytelling or potentially directing. There's a couple who have gone down to um, uh, Sterling Road, which is a spinoff from uh, Pukeko Pictures. So they're working on Thunderbirds. So one of the guys, he started out doing previs. He shifted across to doing directing episodes of Thunderbirds within a year and he's just left recently and now he's working at uh, Third Floor uh, which is the world's top previs company in the world He's I expect to see him directing his own films in the near future he's yeah nothing's going to stop him he's, yeah. he'll be going far and there's but we've got guys who have yeah they're all over the place uh, in Vancouver and London 
I was at uh, FMX, which is an amazing conference in Germany. I was at there last year, and I was sitting next to the VFX supervisor for uh, from DNEG, double negative, and I got a message from one of my graduates. Oh, she go to this talk today. My supervisor is uh, is talking. I said, and I reply back, I'm sitting next to him at dinner. And, so, and he get my Ruben says. Oh, I sit next to that guy at work at DNEG. So my graduates are sitting next to and working with these top-level VFX supervisors. And it's, yeah, it's, it's good. It makes you feel like you're, yeah, you're contributing to the industry when you see them go out there and be successful like that. That's awesome. It's amazing to hear those types of stories. So from all of the short films that you've been involved with, because there's an amazing YouTube channel that the Media Design School has where you can watch them all and we'll link to all of these short films. I'm just wondering, is there one that sticks out for you as a favourite, maybe because of the story, but maybe because of the production of it, the memories attached to it? The two most recent ones that have been released, Accidents, Blunders and Calamities and The Dragon Scale, those are right up there. Uh, I think I'm, I've, got, I mean, I've got two kids, five and ten, they have had an influence a little bit on the films, the sort of films I was making, and these two are definitely kind of more kids-orientated. Uh, the Accidents, Blunders and Calamities was just a great one. The filming process was great fun. Ollie and I would just go out and, hey, today we're going to go and we're just going to film the letter C, and we'll just go and get that shot, and we'll just spend time just getting it just right. That was really good. It was a nice process to go through and working with Ollie, and it was each shot was quite contained and as a director, I was really trying to work on the visual storytelling and trying to get the joke of each letter to play out in one shot if possible. That was my sort of challenge and, and uh, really working with the frame. I was, you know, so there are some of, those, some of the letters in that. So in that story, it's a, a father possum is telling a, reading a story to his two kids about the most dangerous animal of all humans. And it sort of goes through an alphabet of all these horrific ways that animals die at the hands of idiot humans and so yeah we have yeah you know, so it'll be andrew the adder is altered by arrow brenda the bumblebee bowled by a barrow and so on so you're just shooting each different letter and that was yeah that was a lot of fun and then the one we made after that uh it's called the dragon scale and uh that was a little more personal story uh and more sort of you know this influenced by my relationship with my son uh but it was we were able to we were shooting some of the scenes up on Mount Tarawera, and that was just that was just phenomenal. Going up there with our camera gear, shooting up there, the privilege of being able to shoot in that space was just amazing. Uh, yeah, so those are those are two special ones for me at the moment. But I think, but yeah, the yeah, the school does have the YouTube channel, but I think we need to push them also to the Vimeo because the Vimeo is where the nice high quality high quality pictures are. <laughs> okay, we'll only put the Vimeo link in. <laughs> I've got a young son who's four, almost five, and um, I'm going to show him accidents, blunders, and calamities. It's actually quite gruesome in a very stylized way, but it's very fun, and I, I think that he can totally handle it now. But I really like the octopus, and yeah. that must have been a fun shot to get to. Oh, that was great. We uh, The guys at Auckland Seaplanes, I think that's what they're called, um, we went down there. And, oh, was, oh, I thought I was going to try and take the camera into like a jet plane, like a New Zealand plane, and shoot out through the window. This octopus would be hanging onto the engine. Soon realised this anything to do with airlines. This is way too complicated. No, no, no. Just big walls of no. 
And so how else can we do this? And then someone suggested a float plane. I said, like, oh, I'll go and talk to those guys. And they're incredibly obliging. And they're like, oh, yeah, we'll go and talk to the engineering guys. We'll get the door taken off for you. No problem. <laughs> I was like, what? Oh, great. So Ollie and I are strapped in. Ollie really strapped in. He's got the camera. And we've got a big tripod lying across my lap. I've got the screen in front of me. So I'm watching. And we're flying out. We just take off from the Auckland Harbour and go out over Ringy Toto. He circles around and then we're just rolling the camera and uh, trying to get our panning shot. And it's just, it's the challenge, I suppose, with that film, filming the shots where the animals obviously are not there and we're going to be adding them and you're having to visualize what the gag is, what the timing of the shot is. You have to have all this kind of mentally prepared so that when you're there flying in an airplane, you've got to get that shot. You know what it is you need. It looks like we're out over out in the tropics, but there was a just we had just enough sun to let the sand come up through the water. It looks beautiful. We got the little lighthouse in the shot. Yeah, the octopus is there. It's one of the best shots here for yeah, sure. It's a beautiful shot. That was one that had quite a lot of original cinematography filming in it. Some others have a lot more animation. And is that touching on what you were saying before? matching the strengths of the classes. I'm thinking of one in particular was uh, First Contact, which mm. had a lot of CG character animation in it. Was there a, a strength in that year of artists for full CG? Or has it really just come down to what the story and idea of it? Uh, first Contact was, uh, in, that, in that case, Nick Ward had already had written the script and he handed me the script. And it was like, okay, well, this could be three different people in a room or we could make them into aliens. And so we'll just replace the heads. And so, but the, in that class, it was uh, we didn't have that many animators. But because we'd filmed the actors, we had very good performances we could work off. And we also had uh, these so helmets that with LEDs built in, so we could tr- uh, match move all the actors' head movements. You're getting all the head movement in time to the voice. That's getting you probably about fifty percent of your animation done just with a tracking process. And yeah, there's a, you get you know, two students onto that and they're roaring away through, they're tracking their shots. And then you've got other people, just, you know, you're doing eye animation and lip animation and so on in time to what's already there in the performance. And so it's, it wasn't actually that difficult to animate. If we just had voices from a studio and the animators were having to come up with every bit of performance, yeah, it would have, you would have need very good animators for that, for sure. But you're working off fantastic actors. Which again is like shelved, could see how beneficial it was mm. to have the actors and the shots giving the performance for the students to use as a reference. It also helps immensely mm. with the editing as well. It mm. means that before we turn over any shots to the VFX pipeline, I already know the story's working, it just doesn't have robots in it in that case, but well, the robots will be there once we clean them out. But yeah, we know the, the performances and the story is working. I was laughing out loud when I was watching First Contact. It is an excellent script. It's really funny. It's, it, yeah, it's one of the ones that divides people. Some <laughs> people love it. Some people don't like it at all. Well, you can take what you want from yeah. it of um, where my sense of humor lies. But yeah. <laughs> In contrast, Escargoa, very much shooting plates for the students to then animate all the characters and composite in. Looking at the behind the scenes, there was obviously a lot of art direction and direction mm-hmm. on what was going to happen in that story, though, as well, to go along to support them, to get them further along as well. Yeah, so Escargore was one where Ollie, uh, Oliver Hilbert, he directed that one. Uh, I was stepping back a bit in, in the more just the producer role, trying to help him, help him through that. And, yeah, that was 
we had a lot more sort of traditional character design. It really does get categorized as an animation. Uh, and so it was that process of going through and shooting plates. Yeah, as you say, it was it was quite a good process, actually. And I'm very pleased the results of that film came out really well. And that very well accepted that film. I think because it so easily falls into an animation category, even though it's got live action background, the audience at, at, uh, at film festivals and so on, it gets it's accepted as an animation. Whereas some of the other films that I've done that have a lot of animation, they don't fit so easily into the animation box. And then people look and go, that's not animation. No, it's a live action film. And so it doesn't, yeah, they sort of, they, they're not quite live action. They're not quite animation. So they sort of sit in this hybrid, yeah. no man's land. Was over the moon in that category. Absolutely. So much work, so much compositing and so much animation really when you think of the astronauts and the mm. humour of the zero gravity trying to catch the vessel. Yeah, there's a lot of actual, yeah, a lot of animation. You're absolutely right with even... Uh, like Julius, the big robot, he's based on. He's obviously we're basing on the actor, but we replace actors with full CG um, spacesuits. So we're having to animate spacesuits to what the actors were doing and try and fit it around where the head, where the head is, and then the compositors were all were cutting out the heads and trying to sort of reverse track them back into the helmets. There was a lot of fiddling around. It was not easy that one. It was yeah. really hard. Again, really talented actors giving great performance for the students to add so much of themselves to it, but having great content to then produce excellent work. I think that's a real signature of the projects that are coming out of the Media Design School. I'm certainly interested in pushing each one to try something different. I always want to set a new challenge for ourselves. I mean, I I look back on some of them. And what we went through, I think to myself, I must have been mad trying to do that. Way too ambitious. I wouldn't do that now. And then I'm what I'm trying to do right now, I think about that. And I'm, I'm thinking in probably in a year's time, I'll think what I'm doing now is to, is this madness. But at the moment, you're in the heat of the moment. You're enjoying it and you're excited and you're telling the story. You just do whatever it takes to get it out there and get it done. Can you talk about that project or shall we uh, schedule another podcast for when that comes out? Oh, the new one, I can tell you, yeah. So we're... we're uh, just started filming actually just a couple of days ago we filmed the first scene so this is uh, the temporary title at the moment it might become the final title it's called As You Command and it's about a, this incompetent painter who finds a genie and instead of uh, the usual wishing for fame and riches he's like I want to be a fireman I want to be a hockey player I want to be a race car driver he's basically going through all his childhood fantasies and every time he screws it up every time he just can't help himself it's just it's him He's the guy who screws stuff up. And eventually he kind of realizes that it's actually his fault, that he's the one uh, causing everything to go wrong. And he's had enough and he's like, I wish I'd never met you. I wish I could forget everything. And the genie's like, no, 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 no. And then he's like, nope, that's it. And so the wish, the final wish is back where he was at the start of the film. He knocks a hole in the wall again, finds his little bottle, pops it out. Oh, cool. And so he's, <laughs> <laughs> he's stuck in a loop. He's, he basically creates Groundhog Day for himself, yes. Oh, I'm really looking forward to seeing that. You and Ollie have taken on quite a few different roles on each one and you sort of seem to sort of change between directing. Is that due to the classes that you're taking at that time or is it more about the project itself? Trying to remember what what um, what was going on when we made Escargor as to why Ollie directed that one. Maybe I was feeling a bit burned out. I can't remember. Uh, and he wanted to have a go. And most of the others I've, I've directed. Although we have done a couple where we've helped other VFX films. 
some short films other people needed help on, like Christian Rivers. We helped with his short film Feeder and uh, Dave Whitehead, uh, his short film Possum. We helped out with the VFX on those. But yeah, taking on external stuff is not easy because you, know, you don't have control of matching it to the students and all that. It's, it's very complicated. But actually, yeah, Ollie is now, Ollie has uh, jumped ship and he's uh, flown off like many to Vancouver. He's now working at Deneg. So we've got uh, one of the other guys, uh, Raphael, he's stepping up into Ollie's shoes. And this is our first production with a new, sort of new team. Yeah. See how we go with this one. Yeah. Oh, cool. Sounds awesome. So there's a large number of software applications that pop up on the end credits of each film. Mm. These applications by no means easy to learn at all. Each of them are heavy-duty, high-end industry tools. How are you finding students having to know so much more with the work that they're doing? Do you find that they tend to specialise on a few of those applications throughout their course? Yeah, absolutely. There's, uh, not everyone is learning all the tools, no. An animator doesn't necessarily want to learn how to use Houdini. Uh, so, yeah, so there's yeah, different specializations, absolutely. The students, some of them are just amazing what they can, how quickly they learn stuff, and you just throw them a bone and go, over, you know, try this thing over here, and next thing they come back with, hey, I've tried all this, this, and this, and I've done this, and it's like, wow, it's amazing. And, yeah, you look at some of the students and you go, why are you here? you could be working right now <laughs> and you definitely feel like they are more colleagues rather than rather than students and that's that's one of the things i love about the productions is that we get to all just to work together on a production i don't feel that much like a teacher maybe because i don't teach the match that much i don't know <laughs> i'm a terrible <laughs> teacher but no it is very much a learning learning through the process but yeah i think because the productions give very real world challenges for them they are pushed to really produce that quality, as you said, is to, to uh, really work out, like, okay, we need to track this. This has to be tracked. This We have to paint out those markers, and we need to be able to uh, get a mesh to line up with that so the animation can run up the arm and do this exactly there. And because we are making a real production, it's not just an exercise. Everyone believes in it, and you work hard, and you push yourself to get that quality. You know, that's a definite big plus in terms of, uh, motivating everyone to give their best. I've seen so many graduates who have applied for roles um, when we've had them. It's really hard to identify what their potential is when they are doing so much on their own. And I've noticed that from other courses um, because they do try and take on every role. That's the writing, the directing, even when it's animation. The planning alone seems to take up more time than the craft of perfecting the shot. What's also interesting with the productions that you've been doing is how real world they are with the tools of um, shot management mm. and making the team work collaboratively in a professional sense. So what are the tools that you're getting them to use there? Well, the big addition over the recent years has been Shotgun, absolutely. That was driven because we knew there was a really big class coming. In the third year, you know, like you've got a year or so, here, we had a really big class of 44. And Ollie and I were going, how on earth are we going to run a class of 44 students? As so we started looking into production management tools, we stopped using whiteboards, stopped using Excel spreadsheets and things like that, and go, right, we need a better way to manage this. And so yeah, we stumbled across Shotgun, and this is uh, just like about a year or so before Autodesk picked it up. Well, that really helped us to be able to 
centralize everything about our process. All the people involved in production, all the work that need to be reviewed, all the comments on that. You can send one comment and send it off to all the right people. Everyone can find out. And is it all uh, recorded there so everyone can see it? You're also assigning tasks. You're also tracking how much time has been spent on stuff. We also involve it for our marking. It just throws everything together for us. So without yeah, without Shotgun, we would probably grind to a halt now. <laughs> I don't know how it would work without it. It's not easy, but we, and we've, we have had to customize with a bit of Pyth- a few bits of Python here and there to kind of get the toolkit side working, where it actually interfaces with our server, and so the students are actually opening Maya through Shotgun and us opening Nuke, and it's saving it saves their files, names it for them, and does all of that in the background for them. All the publishing is all worked out, so we've got quite a robust professional level pipeline set up now. So the other thing we added was our Nuke came along with Nuke Studio. The students don't use that so much. That's more the software that I tend to probably live in front of a lot of the time. And that's for all the shot review. We need to be able to play down the edit and play uncompressed sequences of EXRs and compare to the one that came before and reviewing, you know, finaling shots and all that sort of stuff. So we, I remember we used to try and do that with, in Final Cut with different loading and different versions of QuickTime. So it was just a nightmare. But yeah, Shotgun is, uh, sorry, Nuke Studio is uh, really, really powerful. It, its main feature that I just love is you can just, uh, just up arrow and down arrow through all the different versions of a shot. And you can go back for the very first lighting pass all the way through to the latest and final one. And you can go, okay, hang on, that changed there. That Well, that looked better at version 5. Now what's going on version 9? Um, and you can get to the bottom of maybe some of the problems and just staying on top of that quality control, uh, that's yeah, that's a big, big one. Getting the right feedback to the students. Awesome. Well, I'm really excited to see the next short film when it comes out. And now it's time for the Pro Video Picks. This time of the podcast, we like to do the Pro Video Picks. So could I ask you, James, what your pick is for this episode? I think uh, I've just been through the process of storyboarding this next short film. And my pick of the week is... Uh, a nice pencil and a good little pad of paper. I have tried using an iPad and um, a little touch pen and this pen, different. bought this one, bought this Wacom pen. I mean, I'm sure I could spend more money and find something that might be even better, but the pen and the pen, this, a good pencil, a nice quality lead. Uh, yeah, like I've got this really good black colored pencil that's really nice quality get a nice fine edge that's been just so much more satisfying to do my storyboards and sketch things out quickly on that um that's my pick the go to go go analog sometimes sometimes it's better yeah i agree i love that pick i'm just wondering who are you following online uh lester banks is a good one for tips on new things within the kind of visual effects industry uh the guy uh, is a YouTube channel called Every Frame a Painting. Um, can't remember the guy's name, but that he does he does these videos where he breaks down aspects of filmmaking and directing. Yeah, they're very good. I've I've learned a lot from watching those. And the other thing that I um, subscribe to is a uh, Screen NZ uh, bi-weekly email that comes out, and it's just it's the perfect way to kind of keep in touch with what's going on right here in New Zealand, what film festivals are got entries what training there might be maybe the director's guild's running something uh maybe there's an event on here there's a vr thing here it just keeps you up to date with what's happening around and 
get you out of your the little hole, little cave you might be living in, and go out and meet people. Maybe it's quite good. Always good when that opportunity happens. And I'm just wondering, what's your inspirational video? Well, one of the uh, every every frame of painting. I suppose the one right now is he specifically does the one on Buster Keaton, and that's very much an influence on the film I'm doing right now. I'm trying to trying to bring in some of that visual uh, visual comedy and the actor's performance of this guy who's this sort of bumbling painter. Uh, and I've, it certainly it's pushed me to watch a bunch of Buster Keaton stuff. Yeah, I didn't I hadn't realised how much there was. I'd seen a few little snippets. And I've been sort of burying myself watching a whole lot of that. But yeah, so um, the one on Buster Keaton is fantastic. Uh, but the other one that he did, which is um, related to that, is on visual comedy. And that was really useful for me when I was... Right when I was making The Accidents, Blunders and Calamities, I was about a third of the way through. And he articulates in that why some of my shots were funnier than others. Because I had... I, I was actually staging all of the comedy in the frame, but introducing things or panning across or just using the frame to cinematically tell the joke. So it wasn't just a wide... Um, okay, you, you can... Your Buster Keaton stuff, he'll often be in a big big, big wide shot and you see the action play out and it's, it's amazing. But another way to work is to use that frame and let it reveal the final gag. Yeah. And that's... Um, and just... I, mean, I, I knew some of the stuff sort of because I was already doing it, but I didn't know why I was doing it. And that really helped me understand what the hell I was doing. Where can the listeners follow you online? I mean, the Media Design School has um, has a page, Facebook and all that sort of stuff. Myself, I'm a bit of a Luddite when it comes to all that stuff. My Facebook's for more family and friends, and I've got my LinkedIn for all the business stuff. I'm too lazy to do all the other stuff. I don't have time. <laughs> no, you're you're out there making it and helping the students and the work that you're doing is outstanding. And I've always um, thought so highly of you and what you're you. what you're contributing to the graduating students in the industry. I appreciate. It. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. No, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you very much. And I'm going to hound you when your film is out and after you've done the award circuit and I'll um, have a chat to you about that and, and yeah, I'd really be keen to um, make this a regular catch-up. So thanks, James. Cool. No problem. Thanks much. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. I always love catching up with James and seeing what new work the students are producing. I'd like to ask you a personal favour. Can you please go to iTunes, click subscribe, rate the podcast you're going to need your itunes password it's one of their safety mechanisms leave a comment give me some feedback maybe you want to see a particular guest on the show maybe you want to be on the show if you want to reach out to us on facebook and have some of those conversations search for the pro video podcast you can also find us on instagram and twitter really love to hear from you and get some genuine feedback of what you think about the show and who should be on the show if you'd like the show notes for this episode and all the other episodes you can find that at worldpodcast.com as well as this show you'll find the social media strategy podcast stupid questions with scientists and fearless foodie podcast there's some great content here so i really recommend you to go and check out those too thanks for listening until next time i'm blair walker bye